Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 150 for the second half of October 2016. The topic I'm going to talk about today is whether dark matter is liberal pseudoscience. This is perhaps a bit of an odd claim, uh, especially for an episode as psychologically significant or insignificant, depending on your point of view, as 150. But I wanted to get away from the last couple, which were very Earth-centric, and, well, dark matter is about as far as you can get. So, dark matter, is it liberal pseudoscience? That's a claim made by a website that I don't think I've discussed before on this podcast, and that is Conservapedia, which bills itself as the trustworthy encyclopedia. On their page about dark matter, which I will discuss in a little bit more depth in a few minutes, if you scroll all the way to the bottom, it has a table. The table is titled Theory of Relativity. Underneath it are the topics theories, geometry, controversy and disproofs, liberal pseudoscience, and see also. Listed next to the liberal pseudoscience are black holes, dark matter, moral relativism, and wormholes. I think just from the basic categorization and listing of these, you can get an idea for where this might be headed, but let's delve in a little bit more. As always, the purpose of this show is not just to point out something that's a little crazy, but it's also to use that as an excuse to learn a little bit about science. But that doesn't mean that we can't talk a little bit about the crazy. Conservapedia really is just that. The site was founded by Andrew Schlafly, son of the late Phyllis Schlafly, who was an icon in the social conservative movement in the United States. Phyllis made her name really in the 1970s as a counter to the feminist movement, organizing widespread opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment. She remained a figurehead of those conservative ideas throughout her life, and it was really in that environment that her children's views were shaped. Andrew Schlafly was really no exception, and he founded Conservapedia in 2006 as a counter to what he and others of what I think I can really fairly term the extreme social conservative movement viewed as too much liberal bias in Wikipedia. I've been able to get through this so far without mentioning religion, but that's really about as far as I can get. Conservapedia itself has many pages which are practically clones of Creation Wiki. It's an online collaborative encyclopedia which, as the name suggests, is written by creationists. Specifically, Creation Wiki is really written by the Young Earth creationist viewpoint. Therefore, it's within these two viewpoints, the extreme conservatism socially in the United States and Young Earth creationism, that Conservapedia lies. And the topic du jour of this episode is really about how dark matter is claimed by this website to be liberal pseudoscience. Now, with that kind of background out of the way, and I think a very um, restrained description of Conservapedia, we can begin to answer the question of whether or not dark matter is liberal pseudoscience. And I'm going to be frank here. We're just going to say right off the bat, I'm not going to address the idea of liberal versus conservative pseudoscience. Science itself is science. And if I can show that dark matter is not pseudoscience, but rather science, then it has no political component. Science is science. It's not liberal or conservative. In contrast, pseudoscience can be liberal and conservative. For example, in the United States, 
a bit of liberal pseudoscience, I would say is probably the uh, organic, all-natural, non-GMO movement, that kind of thing. Whereas a movement that is probably conservative pseudoscience in the United States might be something like, oh, climate change denial. So those might be examples of liberal versus conservative pseudoscience, but as I said, if it's science, then it really has no political bent. It is just science. So to then make the case of whether the idea of dark matter is science uh, versus pseudoscience, we have to go back to the 1990s, a fun decade that had competing boy bands and a budget surplus. Y2K was going to kill us all with technology going haywire, and Donald Trump was just a real estate developer on his first wife. It was in the 1990s that we saw a culmination of numerous independent lines of evidence that what we thought we understood about the nature of the universe was wrong. To understand what I mean by that, we need to go back to the Roaring Twenties, where people wore very weird clothes. And also, uh, Jacobus Captain, maybe, uh, proposed in 1922 that there might be material in the universe that we simply could not see. This was supported by Jan Oort about a decade later in 1932. Both astronomers were studying the motions of stars. What they saw was that the overall bulk motions of stars were faster than what they should be. What they had done was that they looked at all of the light from all the visible objects, calculated how fast stars should be moving, and what they really observed for the stars' motions was too fast. Therefore, both pretty much independently proposed that there might be material that was unseen that was causing the stars to move as fast as they were. Now, I'm going to quickly note that Oort's specific measurements were later shown to be wrong, but I now need to explain why the proposed answer for the observation was more unseen mass. To do that, we go back to really the main sponsor of this podcast, Johannes Kepler. Kepler's third law of motion tells us how long it should take for an object to orbit something else, given the distance between the two objects and the mass of the two objects. If you know the distance and the length of time of the orbit, then you can pretty easily calculate what the orbital speed should be. So, using Kepler's laws, if you add up the mass of the objects emitting light, in other words, you see how much light there is, you make some assumptions about the objects emitting that light that lets you calculate the mass, and you can then observe a star at a certain distance from the center of the galaxy, then you know how long it should take for that star to orbit around the center of the galaxy, and you can calculate what that speed should be. We can use pretty straightforward methods to observe how fast stars are moving towards or away from us. Basically, the Doppler shift. That's the thing that makes the train signal go, or the train horn, go from a high pitch to low pitch as it passes you. If an object is moving towards us, the light is going to be shifted to shorter wavelengths because they're compressed, so they're going to look bluer or higher pitched than they really are. Moving away from us, it's the opposite. So we can get at the real speed of stars, compare that with the theoretical speed, and see if they match. If they don't match, really we have, uh, well, any combination of three different things. One, either the measurements are wrong, two, the mass is wrong, and or three, 
Our understanding of gravity, which is the theoretical underpinnings to support Kepler's third laws, are, well, it's wrong. So as a quick midsection recap, nearly a century ago, we used straightforward measurements to compare the speeds of stars in other galaxies with predictions. The stars moved too fast, but option one, bad measurements, were the real reason for Jan Oort's observations. However, these kinds of measurements persisted. Fritz Zwicky saw the same thing with galaxy clusters a year later, in 1933, and he made the first formal proposition about the existence and the idea of dark matter, or dunkle materiae, or something like that. Again, I really can't pronounce nine English words, so let's move on. Uh, he proposed this was an unseen mass that provided the extra gravity that makes stars move as fast as they were seen to move. Basically, this was his method of saying, hey, I don't understand these observations, there's something weird going on, but if we just add this one extra thing, it all makes perfect sense. In particular, it was his observations of a large cluster of galaxies called the Coma Cluster that required 400 times more mass than was available in all the stars, all the nebula, everything basically, to account for the motions of the galaxies. The same thing was observed with the Andromeda Galaxy in 1939. Other galaxies in the 1960s and 70s and many, many, many observations after that. What changed in the 1990s was that a second, completely independent line of evidence was made available for the existence of some unseen material. The Cosmic Microwave Background Radiation, or CMB, which had been discovered in the 1960s and earned its discoverers a Nobel Prize in physics, is leftover radiation from when the universe first became transparent to light, about uh, 375 or 380,000 years after the Big Bang. The COBE satellite, C-O-B-E, or Cosmic Background Explorer, returned its data in 1992, and COBE really became the first instrument to measure little teeny tiny variations on the perfect, well, nearly perfect background temperature. These fluctuations are at a level of about 0.01% or less. What's important about these fluctuations is that their size on the sky, so Think of it as uh, the angular extent, so like how big does the moon appear, how big does your thumb appear if you hold it out at length. So the size on the sky, all of those little wiggles, those are dependent on a very, very few, but very, very fundamental things about our universe. And one of them is whether there's dark matter, and if there is, how much of it? By adjusting these very few fundamental parameters, you can get different predictions for how the cosmic microwave background radiation should appear, the angular size of those variations. And the absolute best fit comes from a universe where the amount of dark matter is a little more than five times as much as normal matter. And so, at the end of this history lesson, we have the following situation. For hundreds of years, based on empirical relationships from Kepler, and then the theoretical underpinnings of gravity from Newton, we know how fast stuff should move around other stuff in space. Then, for the past 100 years, we've measured that the objects at the edges move too fast based on adding up 
all the material that can be seen and estimated based on other methods. And when I say edges, I'm talking about the edges of galaxies, and I'm talking about the edges of giant clusters of galaxies. Everything moves too fast. For observational astronomers, that's really one of the biggest and most obvious clues that there is some sort of missing matter, or that gravity acts differently on the largest scales of the universe. Then came precise measurements of the CMB, which showed that the normal matter that makes up you, me, everyone else, the planet, the stars, you know, stuff, basically, uh, all of that normal matter is only 4% of the total mass energy of the universe, and another 21% is made up of matter which we can't see. For theoreticians, this is some of the best evidence for dark matter. There are several other lines of evidence for dark matter, but those are really the two main ones and the easiest to explain. I've also left out a huge number of details in this discussion, but if you're interested in learning more, Wikipedia, with uh, all of its alleged liberal bias, does have a lot more details about the observational evidence for dark matter, and I'll link to it in the show notes, or it's probably faster for you to just search it yourself. So with that said, uh, I would be remiss if I did not, at least briefly, discuss MOND, M-O-N-D, or Modified Newtonian Dynamics. After all, I did say that there were three possible reasons for the galaxy rotation curves, and after experimental error was ruled out, just two. Either there's more mass, or there may be a missing component to our equations for gravity, which really only become apparent at gigantic scales. MOND, M-O-N-D, is that component, in theory. Hence the name, it modifies Newtonian dynamics, or Newton's theory of gravity. Most cosmologists, though, consider MOND to be, well, less likely than dark matter. The cosmic microwave background, especially, fits the predictions for dark matter, but it really did not fit with MOND, uh, though the person who came up with MOND later claims that he can modify it to fit the background radiation measurements. Suffice to say, for this podcast, MOND is now generally considered to be a fringe idea, and very, very few people who study cosmology consider it seriously anymore. But, whether it's uh, the reality of the universe or dark matter is, what I've set out to do is to make the case that the idea of dark matter itself is not pseudoscience. And just because some idea may later be shown to be wrong does not mean that it is pseudoscience so long as the ideas behind it and the way that it was developed and the way that it was supported are sound or were sound at the time. So let's get back to dark matter. I've made the case for why people think that there's something extra that's there, but now I need to tell you what dark matter really is. We have no idea. Well, we have ideas, but we haven't really been able to verify anything yet, though we have ruled things out over the last uh, 20, 30 years or so. The core idea behind the stuff is that it's matter. It's, uh, it's a material like atoms, but not atoms, as opposed to energy, like photons of light. And it's dark in that we literally cannot see it at any wavelength that we've looked at with light. This is opposed to, or as opposed to, ordinary matter, which does interact with light through forces other than gravity. The only thing that dark matter seems to interact with is gravity. So, well, what could it be? 
If you were to go back to episode 69, I discussed the solar neutrino problem, something that was solved, though, uh, in 2001, and it showed that neutrinos, particles that can pass through Earth without a second thought, have mass. They were previously thought to not have mass. Uh, now we know that they have just a teeny tiny little bitty amount of mass. This is incredibly important because it's been thought before that they were, well, as I said, massless. But from examining the large-scale structure of the universe and details of the CMB, neutrinos only make up a very, very small portion of the mass energy of the universe, and so they can't be what dark matter is. We also thought for a time that dark matter could be something like a, a large population of black holes or other massive objects that didn't emit light called machos. Macho stands for Massive Compact Halo Object. On the other end of the side scale, some theoreticians have proposed WIMPs may make up dark matter, where WIMP stands for Weakly Interacting Massive Particle. So maybe machos and WIMPs. But we've looked, and there are multiple lines of evidence that say what we're looking for is something that really is unlike any kind of matter that we're familiar with, where even machos and WIMPs would still be new to discover they can still interact with light, whereas dark matter does not. One way that we've ruled out machos and wimps as the explanation for dark matter is through the cosmic microwave background, which I've already mentioned. We can really only reproduce, theoretically, what we see observationally if there's a large component of the universe which only interacts with light through gravity and not through absorption and or emission and or reflection, uh, anything like that. Another way is that we've looked. For machos, even if they're dark, their gravity is going to bend light of distant objects through a process known as gravitational lensing. If a sizable component of dark matter were in actual factualness machos, we would see gravitational lensing at a much, much larger rate than we actually do. On the other end, we've also looked for WIMPs through numerous particle detector experiments, and we've found nothing. So, what we're left with is ideas, possible methods to test some of them, and many, many things that have yet to be ruled out, and other things which have been ruled out. Is that science? The process of making observations that don't make sense at the time and then positing that something could explain them, and then trying to gather evidence for it through multiple different lines that seem to support that idea, well, I would argue yes, that is science as opposed to pseudoscience. It's withstood many attempts to falsify or explain it through other means, and we do keep coming back to the idea that the best explanation is still one where there's some weird form of matter that only interacts with the rest of the universe through gravity. That doesn't mean that there aren't other potential explanations for the observations. I've already mentioned MOND as one of them. Another possible explanation, which I think would be really neat if there were really any way to test it, is that maybe there are extra dimensions to our universe and gravity is the only fundamental force that can cross between them. That would explain why gravity is the weakest of the four fundamental forces in the universe because it's spread out over more dimensions. Then, the missing mass, or dark matter, would be in those other dimensions and therefore only visible through their interaction with gravity. So, in other words, the movie Interstellar was correct. 
Another possibility that's really been proposed uh, is that there are primordial defects in quantum mechanical fields. Those defects contain embedded energy and therefore have a gravitational component. This could actually be tested with a network of space-based atomic clocks, but a direct test has never been done. And if my explanation here seems a little bit more wishy-washy than usual, that's because I am not a quantum physicist, I am not a mathematician, and the idea of topology of quantum fields leaves me guessing at even the name, let alone delving even further. But with that said, and with what I said before, I still think that I made a good case for the idea that dark matter is a science and not a pseudoscience. And with that case made, I don't have to discuss liberal or conservative. And after all of this, I really, well, I should give a fair say, or a fair representation, we'll say, to the young earth creationist viewpoint which inspired the Conservapedia article. From creationwiki.org, which really, as I said, is from what the Conservapedia article was copied and pasted, although I really do like the term that expat, a former guest of this podcast, wrote in a recent blog post about Mike Barra. He called it Control-C, Control-V scholarship. We have this. Creationism, of course, declares that any observed effect results from the creative action of God. In 2000, relying primarily on this theory, Don DeYoung, writing in the Creation Research Society Quarterly, concluded that the hand of God was responsible for holding rapidly spinning galaxies and larger systems together, despite the observed mass deficits. Most creation scientists, however, prefer to assume an economy of miracles. Okay, Uh, well, that kind of sums it up. The page also does go on to explain some of the uh, ad hoc math and claims to give the right answer. I'm not going to get into that. But the page also states that Don DeYoung, quote, challenged the notion of dark matter as a fanciful component with little justification. He pointed out that none of the conventional explanations popular at the time were satisfactory, end quote. As I already explained, though, Real scientists have also ruled out those possible explanations, and they continue to point to something that is not made of normal matter, which all of de Young's criticisms were about machos and wimps, so therefore his criticisms no longer stand. The first half of Conservapedia's page is, as I said, Control-C, Control-V scholarship. But it does have an extended section on criticisms of dark matter. Surprisingly, though, it notes that de Young's quote, criticism has lost validity, however, as dark matter has been directly measured in filaments, end quote. The Conservapedia article also discusses some of the controversies about dark matter's existence, though it really does fail to place them in proper context. The idea that there is a hidden component that's 21% of the universe is going to have detractors, and they're going to bite at every little stray thread that there is, and without positive detection and identification of what dark matter may be, and there's no even guarantee that it's just one thing, there's going to be people who disagree with it. That's normal. And that's the way science works, and that's why it's also self-correcting. You have to have people ripping at the sides and constantly checking to see if things are on the up and up. Jan Ort's original measurements that supported dark matter were wrong, but later measurements showed that the phenomenon he described was correct. 
Alternative explanations abound, but there are reasons why a new particle, rather than modifying theoretical physics or what we think we know about the structure of the universe, is preferable. One of those reasons is Occam's razor, which suggests that the explanation that introduces the least amount of new information is most likely to be correct, but not necessarily. Or we could just go with God did it, all one word. And if you want to use that miracle as your explanation where literally the hand of God is holding galaxies together, that's fine. But it doesn't mean that you need to call real science politically motivated pseudoscience. There are two additional mini-segments in this episode, the first on logical fallacies. There aren't really any obvious logical fallacies that came up in this episode beyond the simple ad hominem attack of calling something uh, liberal to try to indicate that it should not be trusted. I'm sure that people would get mad at me if I called something liberal or conservative. It's just a label that really has no place in science. There was also the really, really minor logical fallacy in this episode, or, or played a very minor role of the God of the Gaps, uh, that if science can't explain something, God did it. But instead, I'm going to address something that I talked about just a moment ago, the idea of Occam's razor, which is a heuristic that we often use in the sciences. A heuristic is really pretty much any approach to problem-solving, learning, or discovery that uses a practical method. It's not necessarily guaranteed to be the optimal method, or a perfect method, or give the correct answer, but it's usually sufficient at the time. Such is Occam's Razor, a method of problem-solving attributed to William of Occam, who lived from 1287 to 1347. His actual statement, translated from Latin because, as we were reminded this episode, I can't pronounce non-English, literally, well, somewhat, mostly, kind of translates as, plurality must never be posited without necessity. Put in more modern terms, we should never add something to the model unless there's a good reason. Or, put the way I did in the podcast, the model that introduces the least amount of new information is the more likely one. Or, a variant, which is how most people use it today, is the simplest explanation is usually the correct one. The reason why I don't particularly like how it's used in common English today is because pseudoscientists will often use it to say that their explanation for a phenomenon is really the simplest, therefore it's correct. Take uh, ghosts, for example. People have night terrors, they see faces and shadows, they feel like someone's pushing on them, they hear creaks and bumps, rumblings and growls, or have furniture suddenly stack itself, are most simply attributed to one phenomenon of ghosts. But for it to be ghosts, you now have to assume that every scientific test done to try to prove ghosts are real and failed has been wrong, and that some of our basic understandings for how things work are also wrong. Therefore, ghosts is not the explanation that requires the least amount of new information. Similarly, we could go with the face on Mars and other alleged artifacts that people say they find in planetary imagery all the time. It's most simply and easily explained by ancient aliens or an ancient civilization carving them. 
That's instead of the more realistic and likely explanation of pareidolia mixed with weird geology, mixed with weird erosion patterns that we rarely see on Earth, mixed with bad image processing and image artifacts that pseudoscientists don't understand. So again, Occam's razor would tell us that it's the least amount of new information that's the more likely explanation, in other words, geology, weird imaging artifacts, and other kinds of stuff, as opposed to the simplest explanation, which is aliens did it. For the second segment, our second mini-segment of this episode, just two really, really quick announcements. First, reviews. I wanted to thank from the iTunes US store, Unplugged PDX, Thor Go Lucky, and Matthew Max. From the Canadian store, Jedi Pencil, and from the UK store, Flarky. Again, reviews, ratings really help. Uh, if you don't happen to put them on the US iTunes store, but you put them on a different other country iTunes store or another website that I don't necessarily check, drop me a line, let me know, and you may get a shout out on a future episode. The second announcement is on the release schedule. Now, I do put these out such that they say that they are released on the 1st and the 16th of the month. That's for the regular episodes. That doesn't mean necessarily that I'm going to be able to maintain the every roughly 15 to 16 day release schedule based on how my own research schedule is. Um, my own work schedule for the last week has been kind of really crazy, uh, basically writing two papers that total about 300 pages, no, not 300 pages, about 220 pages uh, with over 300 references between the two and getting those out to co-authors, yada, yada, yada. You don't care about that. The point is that there will still be planned two episodes per month, and they will be released such that they say they are out on the 1st and the 16th, but they may not actually be released on the 1st and the 16th. Like this episode is actually coming out, well, hopefully very, 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 very late on the 23rd, even though the RSS feed and everything else is going to say it's the 16th. So... That's what I mean when I say this is the episode for the first half or the second half of the month. I really do mean that, and that's, uh, well, that's just the reality of it. That's how things have to be if I'm going to keep doing this every, uh, for two every month. So, with that said, thank you for your time. I do hope that you liked this episode and maybe even learned a little bit something new. That wraps up this topic of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, or the Facebook post, page, whatever for the podcast, or you can even tweet me, at pseudoastro is the tweet, Twitter, whatever for the podcast. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast website or service of choice. Every little bit helps. If you liked it, or every big bit helps too. If you liked it, also tell people. 